Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with the famous political scientist, Austin Serrett. By the way, he was my thesis advisor in college. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and it is a special pleasure for me to welcome Professor Austin Serrett. He is a pioneering figure in the development of legal study in the liberal arts, of the humanistic study of law, and of the cultural study of law. He's an expert on capital punishment. He's the author or editor of more than 90 books. And uh, full disclosure, he was my honors thesis advisor at Amherst College. Uh, he is a legend among many, certainly at Amherst College, he is a legend. Professor Austin Serrett, thank you for joining as a guest on The Indispensables. Bruce. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's wonderful to have a chance to reconnect. Yeah, uh, I feel the same way. And you are actually somebody who uh, helped teach me how to think and how to learn. But this is something you do for young people every day. And I happen to know I, I did go to law school and I know my law professors knew who you were and you helped teach them how to think about a lot of things. How did you get to be you? How did you get to be who you are? How did you get to be how you are? The sentimental story, which is accurate and true, is I was a rather indifferent student in high school. I did well enough, but didn't care very much for books. And I went to college with uh, that attitude of, uh, okay, I'm going to college, but no big deal here. As a sophomore uh, at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island, where I did my undergraduate work, I took a course with the alluring title, The Legislative Process. And I went into that class with my same bad attitude. Well, in the course of that class, a course taught by a man named Richard Altsfeld, a professor of political science at Providence College, Altsfeld had the capacity to make what I read on the page come alive for me. And I would leave that class and I would think, oh my God, I read that thing, but I didn't see anything like what Altsfeld was able to see in it. And I began to rehearse, to, to try to anticipate what Richard Altsfeld would do with these texts. Well, it turned out that the secret, which was not transparent to me for a very long time, what Altsfeld was asking us to do was to think beyond what we know, not just to reiterate what was in the text, but to see the text as a platform for our imaginations. And that idea of asking students to think beyond what they know, to use what they know as a platform to imagine worlds that don't yet exist, that's been a kind of constant credo for me uh, since I started to teach at Amherst in the fall of 1974. So you say you were an indifferent student and yet you strike me as among the most curious people I've ever encountered. I mean, was do you credit this professor for inspiring your curiosity and your academic diligence? I credit this professor 
for drawing out of me something that I didn't know was there. And that act of drawing out of people what they don't know is there, that's the act of an inspiring political leader, an ingenious business leader. And that's the act that teachers all over the country and all over the world perform in their classrooms every day. I say I'm in the becoming business, not in the being business. I see my students for who they are, but I also see them for who they can be. Did I know that bit of magic would happen for me in that class? No. Did I want that bit of magic to happen for me in that class? No. But it's a bit of magic, and I hope that it gets replicated in my classrooms now 47 years into my Amherst College teaching career. I mean, it does. It's it, one of the great things about Amherst in general is, and I think about higher education at its best, about education in general, is uh, you don't just teach people stuff, you teach people how to think. I don't think I like this notion of you teach people how to think. What we do is we ask them to think. We insist that they think. We listen carefully, Bruce, so that when they say things, that aren't quite right, we insist that they try again. And I think it's more modeling than transferring a technology, modeling what it means to be engaged, modeling what it means to listen carefully, modeling what it means to take what you know and apply it. That's the business I think that I'm in. And again, I think it's the business of leadership, whether in the public sector, the private sector, whether it's not-for-profit work or in education, that's what I think uh, leadership is. Well, and you just did that. Uh, you heard what I was saying and you you helped revise it. And I think that's, that's a great object lesson in this moment. And my recollection of being in class with you is that where I would start thinking better uh, was often when you would ask questions. You ask questions of your students, at least you did. And they were always really interesting questions that, that helped, uh, as you say, see more than maybe. Uh, so I, I start my class is now, Bruce, almost the same way in every class. I go into class and I'll turn to some student and I'll say to that student, I have a problem. And then what I'll do is I'll lay out a scene, a scenario, a hypothetical, or something drawn from the news. And I ask them to, to take what they've learned in the reading or learned previously and apply it to a situation. What I say to my students is, my job is to ask you questions that you are not prepared to answer. If I ask you questions that you are prepared to answer, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I mean by encouraging students, modeling for them, insisting that what is valuable is not knowledge. What's valuable is imagination. Einstein famously said, you know, knowledge is our enemy. Imagination is our friend. What he actually said was to know the world is to know the world. To cultivate your imagination is to see worlds that do not yet exist. And that work of asking students to use their imagination to figure out how does this apply to this? How can I use this to solve that problem? How can I use this to understand that problem? That's the work of the classroom. And maybe that's, I don't know if you agree with this. Um, do you think that that's fundamentally what 
the human mind does at its best is like you could argue that that's the human evolutionary advantage in a way, the ability to imagine things that don't yet exist. Well, I'm not an evolutionary biologist or a student of human evolution, but I am a college professor, so I'm happy to talk about things I don't know very much about. I, I don't know whether it's the advantage of humans over non-humans. It is the advantage of people who look inside and realize that they have capacities that they may not themselves understand. It's what enables us to solve problems. It's what enables us to devise new solutions. It's what enables us to be in the world that is constantly shifting under our feet. I'm excited about this way of thinking about this because one of the things I ask people all the time is, can these core traits like curiosity, diligence, loyalty, um, integrity, can these be taught or are they innate? And of course, uh, you know, I'm a management consultant and I'm a, a trainer, so <laughs> I have a strong bias to say, sure, I could teach people that stuff. Um, but you have 47 years experience it sounds like maybe your bias also is, yeah, that uh, maybe it has to be in there somewhere, but that you can teach people to access or help them learn how to access that. At the end of the day, what we're able to learn, what we're able to imagine, what we're able to invent often is mysterious. Um, there, there isn't, again, there isn't, it's not like technology transfer. I, I can teach people how to turn a screwdriver in a screw, or I can teach people how to drive a car. But what I'm talking about, getting people to think beyond what they know, I don't think you can exactly teach people. You can model it for them. You can insist, you can prod, you can encourage. But the truth of the matter is, to do what we're talking about, to live in a way that is curious, genuine, engaged, it takes courage and a little bit of faith. It takes the courage to take risks because the answer to my, I have a problem question, how does this apply to it, is often wrong. And unless you, unless you have the courage to fail, and unless you know how to fail well, then um, I don't think the kind of learning that I'm talking about or the kind of curiosity that I hope uh, propels it I don't think it can happen. Can I, can I encourage uh, courage? Can I, I elicit courage? That some of that is internal. The good teacher, the good leader models. And the good leader, I hope, inspires by the example. But I, I don't know that it's, as I said, a kind of technology transfer. I can teach you how to. Um, I, I heard maybe a year ago, the president of Colby, I was listening to an interview with the president of Colby. He was asked, what is the advice he would give to college students to be successful in the world? He said two things. He said, first, make sure you're the hardest worker in the room. You don't have to be the brightest bulb. Be the hardest worker in the room. And second, he said, be the most eager learner. He said, if you work hard and you are eager to learn, people want you on their team. That advice, I think, is is terrific advice. It is terrific advice. But, you know, so you've seen so many students go through, you must see tremendous evolution in how people 
uh, go about learning and how not just what they know, but how they know, how they think. That must be in and of itself to see that over and over and over again. Uh, did they inspire you, your students? Again, I'm going to fuss with your premise. The kind of thing that I'm talking about is not a one semester project. It's not a one year project. And it's not just a four year project. And what I often hear from alums is that it took them a while to catch up with the ball that I had thrown. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. The metaphor, I can carry the metaphor forward. I think of my job as a teacher as throwing the long pass, not the short, you know, up and out. And it's not often visible to me in the course of four years. But again, I don't think about what I do as like building a car. You bring in the raw material and I do the shaping and four years later it drives off. I don't like the production kind of metaphor. The, the, the reason I do what I do is not because of the products I produce. The reason that I do what I do is that I feel called to do it. And if it produced no results, I'm not sure I would think that my calling was any different. And the results that it produces are truly invisible to me. How do I know when a former student of mine thinks beyond what they know? And how can I disentangle my contribution from the contributions of others of their college teachers or their high school teachers? So, no, the rewards of what I do is that I get to do it. I get to lead a professional life that's authentic and unalienated, true to what I believe, confident that this belief, this thing that I saw as a sophomore in college is worth transmitting. That same idea of thinking beyond what I know, of course, also fuels my scholarly life. People, there are many, many good scholars who spend their entire scholarly life cultivating the same problem. That's not been me. My scholarship has moved, has gone from this subject to that subject to some other subject, spurred not by, uh, I hope, not by a dilettantism, but by a curiosity that's opened up. I'm studying something and I see something else. And when I'm done with that study, I'm then curious to figure out that other thing. So that kind of desire to think beyond what I know, to, to learn more, to satisfy the curiosity, which is spurred by inquiry, that's the reward. Yeah, it's interesting that you're saying that because so you're, you're to go back to modeling, which is what you were um, uh, the the language you you were using, and you in in that sense, one of the things I find so fascinating about you as a scholar and you as a teacher, and I mean, I talk about modeling. I remember being in college and becoming aware that while you were teaching students at Amherst, you were like going to law school full-time at Yale Law School, uh, driving down to New Haven to attend law school full-time while you're teaching, you're writing books. Uh, and, you know, then, you know, we turn on NPR and you're talking about uh, capital punishment. And so it's interesting to me because it sounds like you, you seem like you're on a mission. You've always seemed like you're on a mission. And what I'm hearing is the mission is the scholarship. The mission is the, maybe the thinking itself, the subject matter itself. So with capital punishment, for example, did that become a mission that you're sort of starting to realize or understand things about capital punishment? Does the subject matter become a mission? So the subject matter does, but I, I want to just step back because I think we're, we've left a part of the story out. 
I believe that I can't do my job unless I communicate to students love, love for the subject, love for the place that I teach, and dare I say it, a deep caring about them. I have a sign on my door given to me by a student who graduated three years ago. The sign says, students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The mission isn't just an intellectual mission. It isn't just, oh, we're all going to solve problems and think beyond what we know. The mission is to communicate to students these levels of caring, caring about my subject, caring about the place that I teach. I want my students to see myself as an active citizen of Amherst. On a Sunday morning, I'll walk across the street from my office to Valentine Hall, 8 o'clock or 7.30 in the morning, and as students straggle into breakfast, I stand beside the person who's swiping their cards to greet them, to say, hi, how are you? Have a good breakfast. Don't eat bacon, have bananas. Because I want my, I care about them and I want them to see my caring. And again, I think this is true for good leaders as well as good teachers. Showing that you care, you care about the thing you're doing, you care about the place you're doing it at, and you care about the people you're working with or you are teaching. That's a part of the story. Challenge, think beyond what you know. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take courage and caring. Know that I care about you, that I care about the subject, and that I care about the place. And that caring about the subject, yes, that's part of what leads me to do the research that I do, to be enlivened by a, why is it that the government of the United States uses this ultimate form of violence? What does it do to the society, to the politics, and the culture of the place that we live? that the government of the United States does this kind of violence. Yes, those curiosities motivated by a caring, caring about the subject, caring about the subject because I care about the country. So it's that combination of curiosity and caring that I wanna emphasize, that I see is at the heart of the work that I do as a teacher and as a scholar. Yeah, and you do model that, in my opinion, uh, from uh, from what I know and from what I recall, and um, and it's evident in the choices you make. You have administrative roles at the college. You have personally, systematically helped build up the institution. Where- so I think if you love a place, you have to serve the place. One way I've tried to serve Amherst is to push against its boundaries, to ask it to do things maybe that it didn't, wasn't ready to do or didn't want to do. For maybe 15 years, I advocated for the creation of a humanity center at Amherst. Uh, it now exists. In the early 90s, I helped found with a colleague in philosophy, a new department at Amherst, created a department which we call Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought. At the time, many people thought, oh, no, 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 that the purity of the liberal arts would be violated if we were to teach about law. So I had to convince people, I had to show them. Most recently, I've created a new program here for first generation and low income students called the Summer Bridge Research Institute. And it is an effort to uh, help first generation and low income students at Amherst develop their capacities 
to create new knowledge. Uh, I created a program here which has enabled students to collaborate with faculty in significant uh, research projects, not to work for faculty, but to work with faculty. Asking the institution to see its own boundaries and to go beyond the boundaries is at the institutional level uh, a parallel to asking a student to think beyond what they know. Yeah, I like that. And it's also wanting the country to be better is the best kind of patriotism. And I think wanting Amherst to be better is the best kind of citizenship in the college. Wanting your students to get better is the best kind of teaching. And it is a kind of caring. It's like if you have a child, like you don't want your child to declare victory at the age of five. You want your child to learn and grow and get better. I agree with that. I think that what we do, when we do what we do well, is uh, my son, who's now 25 years old, when he was in the third or fourth grade, I went to a parent-teacher conference, and there was a sign on the wall that said, comfort, stretch, panic. And I said to his teacher, I said, his teacher's name was Zebby. I said, Zebby, what, what is this thing, comfort, stretch, panic? She said, the wisdom of a third or fourth grade teacher, she said, my job, Austin, is to get your son out of his comfort zone, into the zone of stretch, but not push him to panic. And I think, again, that's good teaching. That's good leadership. That's good institutional citizenship out of the comfort zone into a place where we are stretched to do new things. What do you make of this um, environment in which uh, there's so much conflict right now? Is there um, a role for teachers and leaders to challenge Is there hope for us to get better? Yes, in a sentence. Yes, in a word. There is hope. I wrote an op-ed today. I sent it off. It's called Coping with Constitutional Ignorance and Alienation. The, The argument is really quite simple. It's not enough to say to people, democracy is good. We have to be willing to explain why democracy is good. It's not enough to say to people, you should act like a good democratic citizen. We need to explain to people what thinking democratically means. And among the things that I'm now asking Amherst College to do is to create a program called Thinking Democratically, which would be a series of courses and activities which would introduce students to this very simple idea. What does it mean to think democratically? How has democratic thinking been understood historically? How is democratic thinking understood here and around the world? And what does it ask of us? I think in a way, Bruce, The United States suffered from a period of kind of cultural and political complacency. The fall of communism, the rise of a global economy, led us to think we had no enemies and we would rule the world. Well, I think we've been awakened from that complacency. And I don't celebrate it as, oh, how fabulous we are so divided, how fabulous people have such different views of the world. But I think what's happened is that in that division, uh, we've been shaken out of our complacency. And it's now time for people who believe in democracy, who believe in the rule of law, who believe in constitutionalism, who believe in a vision of possibility associated with freedom and equality. I now think it's our time to speak. 
Yeah, I, uh, what I find frightening is there seems to be a fundamental lack of civics knowledge and basic historical understanding. Like I've had conversations with people, by the way, uh, very well-educated people who, with whom I, I want to say, like, you know, the good guys won World War II, right? Like that. Um, and I think you're right, though, that there's somehow that we were declaring victory maybe after the Cold War. So here's, a, here's something for you to, a survey was done in 2015, 2016. People in the United States and Europe were asked to answer the following question. On a scale of one to 10, rank how important it is for you to live in a society governed democratically. People born in the 1930s, about 75% of them gave 10 to how essential it is to live in a democracy, highest. People born in the 1980s, the millennials, about 30% of them gave a 10 to how important is it to live in a society governed democratically. Well, why is that? People born in the 30s, people born in the 40s, they lived with existential threats to democracy. They lived with fascism or communism. People born after the fall of communism, democracy was taken for granted. They didn't have to think about it. Yeah, I think that complacency you're pointing to is maybe underlying a lot of the conflict. And by the way, I think this links right up with your commitment to scholarship about capital punishment, because if you think about ultimately the government has a monopoly on the use of violence or the, the, le the legitimate use of violence. And that that, that is one of the reasons, I mean, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why democracy is so important and why authoritarianism is so frightening. Anybody who has a commitment to social justice, to racial equality, to uh, religious toleration and pluralism, to re redressing social inequities, they need to focus on making sure that democratic governance survives. Because without democratic governance, social justice, achievement of social justice of the kind that I care about is gone. It's not going to happen. Thinking democratically is, uh, I think, learning to think democratically, remembering what it's like to think democratically, remembering what it's like to care about the rules of the game more than winning, remembering that it's important to tell the truth, but also to tell it in a way that can be heard. Simply telling the truth is not enough. Uh, remembering that what's most important is not what I want, but what we need. Those are things that we need to, we need to be talking about again. Uh, it's an exciting time. It's a dangerous time, but it's a time when our choices matter. The choices that we make in our private lives the choices that we make in the work that we do and the choices that we make in the commitments that we uh, carry out as citizens. Let me say um, thank you for the service you render to this great country. Thank you for the service you render to the law and thinking about civics uh, to the service you render to the, the great college uh, uh, that I attended uh, and my wife and my father. Would you be willing to leave uh, a one word of wisdom for our listeners, if a takeaway word of wisdom, if you had one uh, elevator ride to, to tell people? Courage in the face of adversity. Stay true to your beliefs. Courage in the face of adversity. Courage in the face of adversity. Professor Austin Serrett, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables.
Thank you, Bruce. Pleasure to talk with you. In our next episode, I'll talk with two incredible women from Animals, Devin Bramhall, the CEO, and Haley Brandt, the COO. Wait till you hear them. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.